I'm Tim Salmon. I'd like to have a quick word about uh, public radio, particularly 3CR. The thing about public radio is that it's more open than the more formatted types of radio to what's going on around it. So when you listen to it, you're more likely to hear a reflection of real life. And 3CR being in the heart of Smith Street, Collingwood, is a particularly good example of what I'm talking about. If you'd like to uh, subscribe, the number is 94198377. You've been listening. And very welcome to a special New Christmas Eve edition of the Yarrabug Radio Show here on 3CR. Faith, good morning. Good morning, Val. We'll kick off this in a little bit, but I'm just going to go back and make sure that we start this off in the right manner. I'm hoping that all the listeners out here don't have many blues to pedal away on this wonderful Christmas Eve. Here, wrapping up, I think, for the last show for the Arabug Radio Show for 2018. We're going to do a special little show where we want to just do a couple of readings of little items that have taken our fancy over the year. Some important, some funny, some cute, some outrageous. Faith. I might get you to lead off because I've lost my page. <laughs> let's, let's keep going the way we started. Okay. <laughs> well, Val, I, uh, as you know, and a lot of our listeners will know, the uh, Hunt 1000 finished up a couple of weeks ago with a particularly adventurous uh, version of the Hunt 1000 this year with uh, snow hitting the 10-day riders and um, some very perilous conditions. And it's inspired me to do a bit more bike packing. And I thought, I need some <laughs> tips, some handy tips on bike packing. So I went to the bookshelf and I found myself some handy tips on bike packing. The first of these is from a book called The Art and Pastime of Cycling. And it was written by Mr. R.J. McCready of The Irish Cyclist. The Irish Cyclist was a very well-regarded cycling magazine from the 1890s. This book came out in 1896, I think, within a year of that, if it isn't the right date. And uh, Mr. McCready does write about uh, camping out cycle tours. There we go. That an evening around the campfire can be organised with an impromptu smoking concert (laughs) (laughs) Um, is one of the things he finds that can make a camping out cycle tour particularly delightful. But he is at great length. He has a whole chapter on camping out. 
here's a great length to uh, um, point out that ladies too have commenced to participate in the joys of camp life and rarely have we spent a pleasanter holiday than when taking part in a trip such as this. A description of one will do for all. A narrow, winding mountain valley, far removed from the haunts of men, was selected with a merry little burn tumbling through it. And around a convenient bend where the underwood was thick, the ladies' tent was pitched. It was an understood thing that none of the male campers were to invade this portion of the glen, and the ladies, six in number, were chaperoned by the wife of one of the gentlemen. At a distance of about 150 yards, but completely out of sight of the ladies' tent, were the men's quarters. Musical talent was plentiful, good-humoured chef, witty repartee, rousing choruses, sentimental and comic songs. I mean, this I can just hear this on the Hunt 1000 around Valentine's Hut. (laughs) (laughs) The ladies adjourned to a tent where, like the men, they slept on clean straw with thick blankets for bed clothing. And although several of them were delicate girls... And subject to colds, we do not remember a single instance of any of them suffering harm. Um, I think the only part of this camp out I cannot recommend, I mean, the the straw might have... I, I, I'm, Hard to get. Yeah, I'll, I'll stick to the uh, thermarest. But um, is the Sunday morning making a point of uh, still attending mass? We could leave that bit out. Um but Mr. McCready goes on. He has some other great tips for uh, cycling tours, longer rides, and especially for ladies. Um, he is at pains, and this is a consistent theme across all the riders of the time, on the importance of what you wear when cycling. And everyone, and I think this is something that we still see written over and over again, is uh, very certain that you must not at any time, wear cotton or linen, or you will die and yeah. <laughs> a terrible death brought on by cold. Um, merino or woolen garments are to be worn next to the body, and I don't think we've moved changed one bit. Not on from all. that, no. <laughs> now th- we're back to the turn of the late eighteen uh, hundreds, actually, and uh, this is a, a reading from a book. Um, Fathers and Sons, which was written by Alexander Waugh, who was the son of one of uh, Evelyn Waugh's um, children, so a great-great-grandson of Arthur Waugh, who was involved in the publishing industry in the late uh, 1800s and the early 1900s, and one of those people who was fascinated by cycling. I should point out, actually, that the Molly at the start of this is a masseur that Arthur had employed to give him rubdowns after his cycling trips. People like my Molly Erdale Smith and her mag- mystical fingers were appealing to many types of men, but in other respects, Arthur Wall was not so typical. I think he indulged in an unusual fetishism concerning young ladies and bicycles. He courted Kay, who was to become his wife, in the 1890s on long rides through the Somerset Lanes. Later he taught his young lady friends to ride bicycles in London in a London cul-de-sac, remembering fondly in his autobiography their wild gyrations as they attempted to keep their balance. 
He believed the bicycle to be responsible for exciting improvements in women's clothing, applied the ch- applying the change it brought from dreary, billowing sleeves and long skirts to swishing apron skirts, gym knickers and tight-fitting hose. The bicycle, he claimed, was the real beginning of women's emancipation. In 1898, he published an anthology of verse called Legends of the Wheel, in which concepts of love and bicycling are sensually interwined. In one of these poems, Arthur teaches Lady Godiva how to ride a bike. In another, he imagines himself as a bicycle with a deftly shod woman riding atop. Swift as the swift, winger of women, banishing petticoats, bringing the female, long since irrational, rational dress. Ho, then the park and the pleasures of Battlesby. Ho, then the hose. Oh, my delfly shod womanhood, I am the ubiquitous angel of exercise. I am the bike. <laughs> there was another question that the further later in the book when an impetuous grandson asked Arthur, asked Arthur's wife whether Arthur really got stuck on those long trips away on the bicycle with other single females. <laughs> But the same emphasis on clothing, which was quite interesting. Yes, there was a, a great emphasis for both men and women. It, it caused a lot of uh, overthinking. Still does. <laughs> yes. You know, uh, it's not... <laughs> I would imagine cycling clothing is still one of the biggest sales from all those things. <laughs> well, another uh, source for my bikepacking trip is um, a wonderful book that was published in 1897 by Mari Ward, uh, mm. Bicycling for Ladies. So Mari um, has a few tips that can be used for your bikepacking planning. For touring, she says you only need an extra change of underwear with a change of neckwear needed to carry on the wheel. Everything else could be sent ahead or just go without. But it's important to look well at all times when bicycling. It's necessary to remember the possible conditions that may be encountered and to wear no garment that may prove incongruous. So this is when you end up Forgetting to pack your shorts and having to rock up to the pub in your nicks. Ah, done that before. (laughs) Get out of the ladies' lounge. (laughs) The chief pleasure of bicycling is independence and the joy of being free. Yet a long trip without access to the conveniences and even the luxuries of civilization should not be attempted. I think I'll lend this book to Sarah Hammond. Um, a trunk may be sent home as soon as it has been proved unnecessary or sent ahead and met at intervals, but its non-arrival should never be allowed to disconcert the traveller. Also, for uh, another tip for your bikepacking trip and any trip outside of the city, most of the people setting off on bikes in the 1890s had very little idea of what lay outside the city. Um, They might have been out on a carriage if they were wealthier they might have walked a certain distance but beyond that they didn't know what to expect so people were often relying on um, asking people they came across how far is it to such and such is this a good road for bicycles and a common theme is the dangers in relying on a pedestrian for that information People started carrying uh, cyclometers so that they could work out the distance they'd ridden and use that to locate their whereabouts. 
And Mari Ward is another who warns, do not place too much faith in answers to inquiries unless you are speaking to a bicyclist. For people unaccustomed to accurate judgment differ greatly in their estimation of a given distance or a general direction. And all I can add to that is do not rely on a four-wheel drive enthusiast (laughs) when uh, asking, is this a good road to ride on? (laughs) (laughs) Let's stick to the last century. Now, this is uh, a little passage from a giant Jane Smiley novel called The Private Life. It's a pretty depressing novel, actually, but there's a wonderful incident early in the book. So this would be uh, mid-1890s and... I'll just start and you'll get a picture of what happens. As sometimes happens in Missouri, one of those days dawned bright, a fugitive remnant of Indian summer before the closing in of snow and gloom. On that Monday, Margaret was up the moment she saw the sunlight beneath the shade. It was not a Sunday. She could slip out of the house without getting breakfast, but also without arousing much of a fuss, and she did. She went straight to the bicycle. The door of the barn was already open and she walked the vehicle into the sunlight. Pedalling straight forward was a new experience for her and she understood at once how Dora had gotten all the way around the famous forest park in an afternoon. Covering distance in this solitary manner was marvellously intoxicating. The brown fields and blue sky were all around and seemed to dissipate crisply and evenly into the distance, forward, backward, upward. The fields were darkly defined by the denuded brown trunks of hickories, black walnuts and oaks. In Mr Jones's pasture came in Mr Jones's pasture, across the fence from John Gentry's hayfield, five or six white hogs were grunting and rooting for our acorns. The noises they made had the clarity of gongs ringing in the air. And then she went down. She gripped the handlebars and felt the cold wind lift her hair and it seemed her cheeks and eyebrows. The brim of her hat folded back and the hat itself threatened to fly off her head. But But though she gave this a passing thought, she couldn't, could not stop. The wheels made a brushing, clicking noise on the dirt of the road and she knew instinctively that to keep going no matter how much such going now shocked her. Tears poured down her cheeks and then she was halfway up the next slope. Inertia, she knew what it was called. But she slowed again and then she stopped and the bicycle tilting to the side. Truly riding a bicycle was living life at a much faster pace and very stimulating. She dismounted and pushed the bicycle up the remaining expanse of the slope. She was now two farms away from Gentry Farm. She had forgotten this part of it, that she would be a solitary traveller for the first time in her life. She remounted remounted the bicycle and pedalled for the next few furlongs, possibly as much as a mile. Everything about the effort was much more difficult than she had expected, and fairly soon she was breathing hard, but rarely, if ever, had done that before in her whole life, given her lazy nature and her mother's views about proper female employments. She knew, of course, that she could turn the bicycle round and go back to the farm, but she also knew... 
she also knew that she was more than halfway to town. The long slopes behind her seemed to grow longer, steeper and more arduous. With this thought, she then was no... With this thought, and then she was to the series of dips into Walker Woods. The pleasure of these dips, which she had happily foreseen, was that from this direction south they gradually diminished towards town. There were three of them. She pedalled hard into the first and over the edge. She lifted her feet out either side and down she went, holding tight to the handlebars. She aimed with some nervousness for the bridge at the bottom of the hill and was then across it. After the bridge, the tree thickened and the light grew dimmer. Her momentum carried her first up the her fast up the first bit of the next hill, and she managed to resume pedalling more quickly than she had, and so pedalled to the top, back into the sunlight. The drop of the second dip was immediate. Down she went. This time she started pedalling as soon as she got to the lowest point of the road, and once again managed to get up the entire hill before exhausting herself. Fortunately. The third dip was quite long and shallow, pleasantly relaxing. Though her cheeks burned in the cold, she was warm with the exertion. Though her arms trembled with the effort, her legs felt strong. The seat of the bicycle was springy and comfortable. She had heard of bicycle clubs travelling vast distances. The Columbia cyclist had, had travelled to Kansas City and to St. Louis in a contest of some sort. She came over the rise at the top of the third hill and the town lay before her, bright in the winter sunshine. She sat up straighter and began pedalling in what she considered to be her most dignified manner. And just then, her skirt caught on the back wheel and brought her to a halt. She put her foot down and the bicycle tipped. More clothing. Getting caught in bicycle wheels. <laughs> what could go wrong? <laughs> well, funny you should ask. Well, <laughs> I shouldn't laugh so much. Um, I think a, a constant theme on the Hunt 1000 is the number of brake pads people go through, travelling over the Alps with some steep descents. And uh, we find uh, in May 1897 in the Australasian a report of uh, Ellen... Schwebsch, Schwebsch, maybe. Ellen was the first uh, woman to ride over the Alps. Ooh. So she yep. and uh, her husband and a couple of other people rode from Wangaratta to Omeo, over to Brothen, and then back down to Melbourne. It was uh, a big ride, and uh, on one uh, descent, it all went nearly horribly wrong. On Sunday, the party rode over the Alps and commenced the descent to Omeo. A short rest was taken at Mrs Johnson's, five and a half miles from St Bernard, and then the party met with steep descents round the mountain edge, with ravines on the one hand for many miles. Down one of the hills, the machine ridden by Ellen Schwebich got away with her, owing to a defective brake. One of the and Ellen was an early. Uh, an early adopter with brakes because this was at a period where a lot of uh, backpedal brake and that was it. No, no, they were fixed. Oh, of course, fixed. Sorry. Yes, yeah. yes. Uh, one of the gentlemen. So these they're riding. Yeah, yep, yeah. yeah. One of the gentlemen, some little distance ahead, immediately dismounted, and as the machine and rider came bolting down the road, he grasped the rider and thus prevented what might have ended in a serious mishap. 
After dinner at Kabungra Hotel, a move was made for Omeo, but darkness set in and many of the hills had to be walked down before the journey of 42 miles was accomplished. Here, a large party of townsfolk assembled to see the lady riding a bicycle. There we go. I never forget once going to Tasmania on touring and a couple of young friends from Melbourne came with us and they went touring in Tasmania on two fixed wheel bikes. If anybody's ridden back from Evandale back to Launceston by the scenic route, we'll know that it's a series of rolling hills that are about 200 metres climbing back down again. I'll never forget the sight of Greg getting halfway down the hill, just disengaging from the pedals <laughs> and flying down the bottom and just as easily halfway up, just dropping back into the pedals and off he went. Yeah. All of us on touring the geared bicycles, Christopher and Greg had to wait at the next intersection for about 20 minutes for us to catch up. <laughs> well, and at this time, it was uh, when people published notes for touring, they would warn about uh, large hills. But the warning was not uh, about the difficulty of getting up. It was about the coming down and yep. whether or not this was a hill that uh, only a very accomplished cyclist should attempt or whether or not you should maybe think about walking down it. I walk. I'm always a bad descender, I've discovered. <laughs> Let's go back to an urban setting now. Um, this comes from the writer by Tim Crab, so I'm presuming a lot of people all know this, but this is not bikepacking, this is fantasy bicycling. The rider is ready. Every fibre of his body is tensed. The interests at stake here are enormous. He knows the opposition, is strong and varied, but he is not afraid. In his mind, all is absolute silence, tension, certainty. Then the traffic light turns green. Two, three strokes and the rider is sprinting full out. There he goes, the first to shoot across the tram line, earning, the hi earning him the usual 100,000 gilder premium. Of all his rivals, the Volkswagen poses the greater threat, but the rider squeezes out every last drop and succeeds in throwing himself over the front of the crosswork first, then over the back of the crosswork, crosswalk as first past the traffic post, and at first past the garbage can, four more fat prizes of 100,000 guilders each. Then the Volkswagen passes him. But he's still first among the two wheels. He passes the back and then the front bumpers of the two parked cars, the two curbs of the side street and an advertising kiosk. Be behind a scooter catches up with him. And then, however, that's earned him another seven times 1,000 guilders. The rider is about to cut in and coast when he comes up against a woman on a bike with a child on the back. 200,000 guilders if he passes her before she gets to that pole. 200,000. Even though he's nowhere near having recovered from his sprint, the rider jumps again with all his might. No way he can ever beat this woman. But, but this rider has surprised the sporting world before, and this time he gives every millibillimetre he's got. In a desperate attempt, he pitches forward. The woman sticks out her hand and turns down a side street. The, roll, the rider rolls out, slowly catches his breath, cruises up to the next traffic light. He stands and eyes his opponents. The BMW bicycle seems fairly invincible. A million if he beats it to the crosswalk anyway. <laughs> <laughs> 
it's me getting tensed up at those lights outside the Fitzroy <laughs> swimming pool to race through, race through Edinburgh Gardens at a million miles an hour. Oh, my God, does it ever stop? <laughs> well, I might finish with a, a comment from a Dr Springthorpe. Um, Dr Springthorpe was... <coughs> Quite keen to encourage women to ride bikes back in Melbourne in 1895, even if um, it was associated with uh, greater equality for women. He went to great lengths to assure women that they should ride despite that association. Um, But where I can agree with him is uh, when he says that there remains only to say that Melbourne and Victoria are well adapted for the enjoyment of this most captivating and healthful of exercises. We have a climate that invites cycling almost the whole of the year. We have in and around the city miles of good going in tram tracks, asphalt and the like. We have within afternoon's reach a number of pleasant resorts and we have in the country many places and towns worthy of repeated visits. And so... At the end, cyclists can repeat with added emphasis the eulogium with which Will Carlton welcomed their machine 12 months after its introduction. We claim a great utility that daily must increase. We claim from inactivity a sensible release, a constant mental, physical and moral help we feel that bids us turn enthusiasts and cry, God bless the wheel. Whoa! (laughs) Isn't there a church in Italy somewhere? (laughs) Sorry. What have we got? I've got uh, one more now. This comes from um, No Logo, Naomi Klein's 2001 2001 books. Now, she talks about RTS, which is Reclaim the Streets, of course. In many cities, the street parties have dovetailed to another explosive new international movement the critical mass bicycle rides. The idea started in San Francisco in 1992 and began spreading to cities across North America, Europe and Australia at roughly the same time as RTS. Critical mass bicycle riders also favour the rhetoric of large-scale coincidence. In dozens of cities on the last Friday of every month, anywhere from 17 to 7,000 cyclists gather at a designated intersection and go for a ride together. By force of their numbers, the bikers from a critical mass and the cars must yield to them. We're not blocking traffic, the critical mass riders say. We are traffic. Since there's a fair amount of overlap between RTS players and critical mass riders, it has become a popular tactic for the site of street parties to be cleared of traffic by spontaneous critical mass rides that sweep through the area just moments before the blockades are set up and the partiers arrive. Sounds like bikepacking. <laughs> urban bikepacking. <laughs> bike I'll tell you that, urban bikepacking. <laughs> <laughs> well, if we want to get back to urban uh, biking, then uh, again... Sticking with the 1890s, we can see that uh, everything old is new again. There we go. Yep. yep. Um, I think uh, one of the things I read recently well, in a newspaper from 1895 was the suggestion that uh, when one of those pesky carts pull, cuts you off or rides too close, 
uh, you should take the business's uh, details and get in touch with them and tell them that cyclists will no longer be giving them their uh, business, which is, uh, I think, a, a very current idea. <laughs> <laughs> not a bad idea. No, <laughs> no. It's all used to be that now. I'm not buying any of your mobile pet, mobile petrol anymore <laughs> yes. because your truck driver cut me off. And that's all we've got time for this Christmas, special Christmas Eve edition. I'd like to wish all those people out in 3CR land a happy 10 or 12 days off and to get ready for a new and exciting year next year in 2019. And to emphasise that all the announcers here at 3CR are... Volunteers. And 3CR relies on your support to stay on the air. So if you maybe for Christmas would like to uh, donate or subscribe to 3CR or get a subscription for someone you know who'd like it, then uh, jump on the website now at 3cr.org.au and uh, pledge your support to keep 3CR on air. Yep. Otherwise, I'll play Mariah Carey Christmas song. <laughs> <laughs> Take care.